Good morning, Evergreen. If you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 13, we're going to be covering verses 24 through 31. Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 24. And isn't that good news? You know, the Bible talks about, especially in the prophets, this future day of the Lord, a day of disaster, a day of destruction upon the wicked. And what we see every time is that part of the reason why God tells us that he's sending destruction is because if it hasn't happened yet, today's the day of salvation. Today is the day in which we have an opportunity to turn from our sins and trust in Christ for salvation. And God makes it very, very abundantly clear, even where we just read in Joel, that there's going to be a day in which God shakes the heavens, where it's like the stars will be falling from the sky. But guess what? He's telling you so that you may turn and hope in Him. So we have to be really careful when we're focusing on looking at things like the text that we're looking at right now about judgment, that we realize that there's really nothing that we should fear as long as that we're prepared, and prepared in the right way as as God would have us be prepared. So having that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 24. And we're starting in the middle of Jesus' sermon about the end times, answering the question that the disciples had, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Verse 24, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You know, I came across something, and I had heard before, and I wanted to look up some of the statistics about this. There's an article that was written I found that said, For Generation Z, climate change is a heavy emotional burden. And talking about people who had come to age in the recent decades, millennials and members of Generation Z, have been exposed to a steady stream of alarming news about climate change and ecological destruction. And there was an interview in which Ray explains how climate anxiety is greatest for Generation Z, those born between 1997 and 2012, who have been bombarded with news of climate disaster on social 
media. They wanted to say that they feel betrayed by government in action and dismayed when told that they're in overreacting to what they see as an existential threat. You know, there's something common to humanity. Everyone has some sort of end times view. Everyone has an end times view which motivates our actions in the present to some goal or some action that we should be doing now on the basis of something that we know is going to happen in the future. And what they're talking about here is that there's this whole generation that's been raised with looking forward to ecological disaster. This is their judgment day. That there's a coming disaster that's coming upon the world, and they're wondering why, if this is true, why isn't anyone doing anything about it? Now, we know as Christians that while we should have stewardship over the earth, we should care, we also know how this world is going to end. And it's not going to end as a result of our activity towards the earth or towards our inactivity towards this planet. Sure, we could do things that cause more people to die or less people to die, but we've been told here at bare minimum in our text that what's going to bring this present age to an end is not some natural disaster or really any natural disaster. It will be a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, coming on a white horse, bringing God's judgment upon the wicked, upon on every evil thought, every evil word, every evil deed. But I understand the sense in which, if you truly believe, and imagine that you grew up in an age, and maybe some of you are in this age, that everything you are bombarded with, news-wise, has been told you that the end of the world is coming unless we do something about it. There's kind of two Christian two sins that we also fall into is the same thing that they fall into with their end times view. Which is we either go down the road of having anxiety about the future, about what's going to happen, or apathy or indifference towards what's going to happen in the future. Saying that we can't do anything about it. And the reality is that Christians with our end time view even though it's based on the truth of God's word, we also fall into those same pitfalls of either anxiety or indifference and apathy. And that's what Jesus is protecting his disciples from. Both of those two pitfalls. And we see this in the sense of, this is a private conversation that Jesus is having with his apostles, or rather with the 12 disciples, Specifically, we know at least the four who asked him the, the question. And we can look at this as a framing of what's happening next. What is next on the redemptive historical calendar in God's timeline? What has he told us? What can we know about the future? And how does Jesus show us this in a way that should relieve our anxieties... And should make us not be apathetic towards it. Well, I would want to convince you that when we get to verse 24, 
that Jesus has had a shift in subject. That he's been talking about verses, from verses 14 to 23. I think that if you want to, you could try to see in which all those verses pertain to the temple and the destruction of it in 70 A.D. I'm not of that persuasion, but I could grant you that. I could grant you that I could look at 70 A.D. and maybe locate all those verses in it. But starting at verse 24, we have Jesus answering, or really answering the same question that they pose, but answering it in a way to show that he's, there's a separation. These are two different events, the t- destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and Jesus' own second coming. And by telling you this, I, I know that I'm treading on some tough or some murky waters here. I'm not claiming to have 2020 vision, but what I would like to do is just go through this, and at least in these first four verses, see, is this applied to the temple destruction that we talked about last week, or one of the many temple destructions that we saw last week, or is this looking at the second coming of Christ? Because this matters in the sense of what our expectations for the future is. And by saying that this applies to the second coming of Christ, maybe that's just a lot of your assumption. But in the PCA, we have this big name called R.C. Sproul. And I'm disagreeing with R.C. Sproul on this text. He said that that all of this, from beginning to end, this discourse applies to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., And he points to the weight and the gravity of verse 30, saying, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So before we look at that verse, verse 30, let's look just at these verses. Is this speaking of the temple being destroyed? Well, verse 24 says, But in those days, after the tribulation, which one? Most likely the one... The last time he used that verse, in verse 14, talking about a tribulation that's coming upon Jerusalem. But then he quotes something interesting. He says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That comes from Isaiah chapter 13. Let me just read to you Isaiah chapter 13, starting in verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. We just heard that, right? I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. You see, back in Isaiah's time, he was giving this prophecy prophecy for the destruction not of the temple in 70 AD, but the destruction that Israel would undergo from the Assyrians and from the Babylonians. What he was doing is he was tying the fact that the destruction that was about to come upon that nation for turning away from God was a mirror, a picture of what God would do in the future on the day of judgment upon the whole world. And not only that, but he also, that second half, 
that the powers, that the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, that comes from Isaiah 34, verse 4. And if we look there too, we have the same sort of picture. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention. This is verse 1. O peoples, let the earth and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. And he has devoted them to destruction and has given them over to slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out. The stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heavens shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. He's applying this, once again, he's talking about the fact that on the day of judgment for the world, that the heavens would be shaken. You see, every single destruction that comes upon humanity and that has ever come upon humanity has just been a simple foretaste of God's wrath upon the world and its sinful rebellion. If we were to look at the Gospel of Matthew when alluding to this text, Jesus brings up the fact that the days of Noah were a foretaste of final judgment. That just as people went about their business, completely indifferent about their sin and indifferent about God's coming judgment that Noah predicted, they were going about minding their business when all of a sudden the flood hit them and swept them all away. Or the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, in which they were going about their business, going about their sin, indifferent to what God had said to them. And they had, all of a sudden, in the midst of all their activity, fire come from heaven and destroy the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Each time, and with each destruction, in all these different events, whether it was with Noah or whether it was with Sodom and Gomorrah, or here with Jesus, whether it was with the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, God being sovereign over all things, both predicts in the future what's going to happen with historical specificity, while at the same time showing that this is just a foretaste of the day in which God will shake the heavens and the earth and bring destruction and judgment ...upon all mankind. So what he's talking about here... ...is that there's going to be a day of judgment... ...in which the whole world... ...will be shaken. In verse 26... ...it's linked with... ...a very specific moment. And then they will see... ...the Son of Man... ...coming in clouds... ...with great power... ...and glory. This text is quoting once again... ...and this is kind of the third time actually... ...that Jesus has quoted Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And here we're going to get to our first kind of hermeneutical difficulty. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says... ...behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom... ...that all peoples... Nations and languages should serve him. This dominion is an everlasting dominion 
which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So once again, I ask you, what is this referring to? What's Jesus predicting here? Is this referring to the temple's destruction that we looked at and saw very clear lines, especially in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 21? Or is he talking about judgment upon the world? The first thing we have to do is realize, if we're going to look at a, start at an answer here, is to realize that Jesus' answer is kind of limited by the question that's posed to them. And the same thing is true with statistical, statistical, I don't know if that's a word, statistics, with certain surveys that are conducted. You know that a survey that's conducted, including the one that I read to you at the beginning, is only as good as the questions that they ask. Because it limits the framing of the type of answer you'll get. And from the disciples' perspective, prior to 70 AD, when Jesus predicted this future event called the destruction of the temple, they were looking at that and could only think, this is the end of the world. When is this going to happen in all these things? And Jesus gives them one answer. But he does so in a way, and he has already shown that all the tribulations that you go through in this life are not necessarily signs of the end. It shows that there's signs that the end is near, but not that it's here. And he said that in verse 13, when he said that, be on your guard, Oops, sticky note covering that up, that you'll be hated for all men by all men for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, saying that through all the tribulations they it won't have come to an end. And after predicting the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, he said after those days, verse 19, that there will be tribulation, that creation since now will never be. And he talks about how afterwards, verse 21, that there are going to be people, false teachers, false prophets, still spreading lies. So whatever the destruction of the temple was, Jesus was not saying that the end is going to come immediately afterwards. And Jesus said in verse 27, Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and to the ends of heaven. See, the part of the problem here is, if you're looking at this, I could see from maybe uh, R.C. Sproul's perspective that Jesus is right now reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's true, by the way. He right now is on the throne of God. And right now, he is sending out his angels. He is saving his elect, verse 27. In the four winds, in the ends of the earth, in the ends of heaven. Basically saying from the, four, the far corners of the earth, all over the globe... That word for ends there is like it's the word that you would have at the tip top of the mountain or the lowest part of the sea. The ends of the sea is the very depths and the ends of the mountain is its very top. Every corner of this globe, God is sending out his angels to save people. What is he talking about here? It, just looking at that one verse, maybe R.C. Sproul's right. But we're given a picture in Matthew chapter 25 of what the end of the world is going to look like. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus tells them that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, 
and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he'll separate people, one from the other, as, shepherd, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. That the end, when Jesus comes, he depicts a day in which the shepherd will come and he will bring all the nations to himself and he will separate his people from those who do not belong to him. What Jesus is showing here, and especially here, what's this connection then with that tribulation in verse 19? Have you noticed that judgment, tribulation, and suffering is paired right with Jesus' return at the end? You know, with, we can just go ahead, and I've tried to do this a couple times. Now, we, I'm not going to predict the future with historical specificity or tell you times and dates. But we can start to eliminate some options for what the future is going to look like. You know what we don't get in this text anywhere? We don't get some future reign before Jesus comes and ju brings Judgment Day about in which he's going to establish a thousand-year reign in between his first and second coming. It goes from tribulation to him bringing judgment upon the wicked. Between suffering, the church enduring suffering, to Jesus coming and delivering his people. And that's true wherever you look in scripture. Isaiah 35 verse 4 talks about the fact that they shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. And he says, strengthen the weak hands and make the firm knees uh, the, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You know, the moment that Christians are looking forward to, the next date on the redemptive historical calendar is not a thousand year reign it's always depicted as the return of Christ. And Jesus, with his return, there's a couple of different events that are going on almost in the same day. Now, I don't know if it's all one 24-hour day, but at least all with the same moment in history in which Jesus comes, and Jesus comes to shake the heavens, bring judgment upon the wicked, to separate sheep, in goats, and by doing so, he brings judgment upon the wicked and salvation to his people. And at this point, then, we see how did Isaiah strengthen those who are anxious about the future? He told them that though God is coming, that there is a day of wrath coming upon the sinful world, and even though we are sinners, if we are found in Christ, we have absolutely nothing to fear. Jesus is talking in private to his disciples. He's telling them that what's coming with the future day of wrath is not just fireballs descending from heaven, but Jesus himself 
has been appointed as judge to bring judgment. This is Revelation chapter 19, John chapter 5. The good news is that those who placed their trust in Christ have placed their trust in the judge of the world, the God who will make all things right. That the same God who's going to bring wrath on the world, that same wrath is going to bring salvation to his people. It's really easy for really everyone to see sin out in the world. But the apathy that often happens in the world is that we see, yes, you know, we might be troubled by the fact that there's sin and evil going on out in the world out there, and we want God to do something about it. But what we don't realize is that if God was going to come in judgment, and it wasn't sending Jesus Christ first, and he wasn't patient in sending it, guess what? We would be under that same judgment that same wrath, that in Jesus Christ, the good news is that we have that there's one name under heaven by which we must be saved. But there's still some difficulties, and I think that we have to look at here, if we're going to wrestle with this, is we have to look at this parable or this lesson starting in verse 28. This parable or lesson. Because Jesus tells us some things that we can know. We know what we don't know from verse 32 that I didn't read this morning. But that concerning the day and the hour, really of judgment in general, and specifically it has reference to Jesus' second coming, that no one knows the day or hour. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What we don't know is the time. But what we do know are the signs that Jesus gave us. And that's what he tells them. He says, learn the lesson from the fig tree. And by the way, he had already had a parable of a fig tree back in Mark chapter 10, saying that Jerusalem should be ready for the judgment that's coming upon it. And pronounced curse on the fig tree, so I wonder what's going to happen. That here he says, learn the, the fig tree's lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer... Is near. What sort of signs has Jesus been giving to his disciples? Signs that destruction is near. Signs that Jesus' is coming is soon. And he says about those signs, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have pay- taken place. What sort of things has he been talking about? Well, it could be in reference to the events themselves. Or it could have the reference in just the previous verse. The these things in verse 29. Which are the signs that destruction, signs that Jesus' return is near. What are we to, what are we to know about the calendar? That his coming is soon. You see, part of the issue with this, and I'll, I'll say that this text has been quite hard to get my hand around, get my mind around it, really. But the good news is that this isn't the first time that Jesus has predicted something like this. Mark 8, verse 38 said, 
that whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, talking about the people who are rejecting him in front of him, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said there, chapter 9, verse 1, Then he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory, in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the, coming, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we haven't gotten to this one yet, but in Mark chapter 14, when there's a trial going on, Jesus looks the Pharisees in the face and he tells them. The high priest asked him, verse, this is Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 61. He asked him, are you the Christ, the, the Son of the Blessed? Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see what? The Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Isn't that interesting? Jesus has told three different people in this generation living before him that they will see his coming in power, his glory. That was Mark chapter 14, verse 61. If, you have a, if you're wondering, you want to fact check me on that. I, I'm completely okay with you fact checking me on anything I say, especially in the realm of end times, by the way. What's Jesus saying here? In what sense have they seen Jesus' kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? What happened in Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1 Verse 6 actually alludes to and makes note of this same thing. Let's see where I put it. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They're asking themselves the same question that they usually do. When they had come together, this is after the resurrection. Jesus has met with them in his resurrected body. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They asked him this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And look at Jesus' answer. He gives them the same answer in this sermon. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that your father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What were the disciples witnessing at that moment? They were witnessing Jesus rising and sitting at the throne of God, coming in power and glory. 
They saw Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 come to pass. For Jesus had already told them, all authority has what? Been given to me. And that was the very impetus behind them going throughout the whole world preaching his gospel. You see, with Jesus' resurrection and ascension, we live in this weird period of history in which Jesus Christ and his kingdom has come in power and glory, bringing salvation to sinners who trust in him. And everyone in this room who's a believer in Christ can attest to the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. We see that his kingdom has come in power. And yet the end hasn't come. We're told over and over again that what we live in right now, we think of the end times, the last days of the world, as something maybe far distant in the future. Maybe something that will happen to other people when other people go through a seven-year suffering period and then a kingdom is set up on earth. No, we're told that we live in the last days now. That we're told, verse... That we're told, here we go, have them come together. That Acts chapter 2, in interpreting what happens at Pentecost, when the heavens are shaken, quoting Joel's prophecy that we just saw, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. That them witnessing the day of Pentecost was them entering into the last days. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest when? In the last hour. Times for the sake of you. Or Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. That's speaking in verse 1 that in, in previous days... ...God spoke to his people by prophets, by mediators... ...by people like Moses and David. But in these last days... ...he has spoken to us by his Son... ...whom he has appointed... Heir of all things, through whom he has created the world. When we, right now, what the day that we are living in, the age that we are living in, is a day in which, as we started off this, looking at Psalm 110, is a day in which Jesus has come to power. That his kingdom has come. Because Jesus Christ, by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, is right now seated at the right hand of God and is King of kings and Lord of lords. Right now, his kingdom has come to the earth in the sense of that his people, are, our very lives are evidence that Jesus Christ is king right now. And the weird thing is, and the thing that the disciples had to learn is that when Christ ascended to power, as depicted throughout the entire Old Testament, that judgment didn't come 
immediately. The signs that we are given when it comes to false teachers, false Christ, is a signal that we live in the last days. That Jesus could come really, if not at any moment, most definitely within our lifetime. And this is the dynamic, really, of the Christian's view of the end times. Knowing, and we'll really get to what it looks like to be a Christian prepper next week. Realizing that Jesus could come at any moment. But what are we, here, what are we looking at here today? What he's given us is verse 30. He said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Guess what? Every sign that Jesus spoke to, every sign that indicates the end is near, has come. And in that sense, Jesus could now come at any moment. You know, Acts chapter 1 is not the only place that references Jesus' ascending in the clouds to heaven, predicting that Jesus will one day also come in the very same manner in which he left, not to bring salvation, but to bring judgment. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation, rather, Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. Pause there, just, when is Jesus going to be ruler of the kings of this world? Someday, maybe way far into the distant future from now? No, right now he's the king of the earth. To whom? Uh, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. If you believe in Christ right now, we don't have a temple. You are the stones of the living temple of God. His kingdom is in the midst of his temple, which is made up of human beings who trust in him. And it says of this kingdom that he made us a kingdom, verse 6, priest to, the God, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those whom pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will, weigh, will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is, he quoted now Zechariah. He's quoted so many different Old Testament texts, it's hard to even keep up with them all. But you know the reality is, is that when Jesus quotes all these different Old Testament texts, however he quotes them, and whenever you're looking and doing your Google searches and you see that he's quoting some text, notice that Jesus always quotes any prophecy and shows how it's fulfilled in himself, either in his first coming or his second coming. Saying, he's quoting here, Zechariah 12, verse 2, that people will look and mourn upon those whom they have pierced. What we are to know is that right now, being a Christian, if we're looking at the whole timeline of human history, there's only one event that's on the horizon that we are called to look forward to 
and call people to repentance because it's coming, which is the second coming of Christ, in which he'll bring judgment upon the world and salvation to his people. That's the only moment. That's the next moment on the historical calendar. And the thing we are to know is not the time of when, but to know that we are in the the last days because Christ has inaugurated his kingdom, that he is on the throne, and that his waiting right now is merely his patience, allowing for today to be the day of salvation. Talking about this all, it, it just kind of brings me back to where we are kind of as Christians. We're either in anxiety, not realizing that the end of the world's not going to come until Jesus brings it, being fearful maybe of our children because of the political environment that America will be in, or living in fear maybe just because we, don't, we see that this world is rejecting God. Or maybe you think that the world's going to come to an end by some sort of climate crisis. You see, Jesus cures his people's anxiety by showing that if you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear. That God knows the day and the hour where he, when he will bring this world to an end. And he's going to do it himself. Close to, this is from that original survey, that close to 40% of the people who had fears about the future, Generation Z, said they were reluctant to have children of their own because of their fear. And it's interesting where the article kind of goes at this point. It says, while their findings, they find such findings such, uh, so incredibly sad, she believes that the distress about climate change can be transformed into super fuel to generate positive change. And she says, quote, Anger can be a hugely motivating force when it is based in a real sense of injustice. And it shows that your conscience is alive and that your sense of being morally transgressed is intact. Did you hear that? She said that while it can be sad that people are really pessimistic about the future, that this can, be trans- this can be used as super fuel to generate positive change, to do something. That they're frustrated that people are so apathetic towards the future. See, the reason why I'm apathetic when it comes to issues of climate change is not just because I don't think that it could possibly be that we could alter the climate. Ultimately, my apathy is in line with the fact that I know it's not going to bring this world to an end. I know who is. And I'm not pessimistic about the future. And none of us should be afraid to bring children into this world. Why? Because whenever your children do come into this world, Jesus will be king of that world. And all of human history will still be operating according to his sovereign plan. And while there's a certain pessimism for those outside of Christ, 
Christians are not to fear and live in anxiety because we are to be wholly optimistic about the future. And yet, we need to be very careful that our optimism, optimism about the future, that it'll all just pan out in the end, doesn't lead us to inactivity. It should lead us and supercharge us to see the power of the gospel to save sinners. We don't have anger as our motivating principle that leads us to be an instrument of change in the lives of our neighbors and in the lives of the people around us. What motivates us is love. What motivates us is that we know we have the solution to the world's ills. We know that there is a judgment coming, but we love people enough to not see them undergo that punishment. Sometimes we don't share the gospel because we don't know what to say. But other times we don't share the gospel because I think we don't live in the reality that there's a judgment coming on those who are outside of Christ. We live lives of indifference. We live lives as if there's no judgment to come. And if you know that we are in the end times, if you know that Jesus Christ reigns right now and he's given the signs that his judgment that is near, that it's coming soon, that it's impending, when we don't share the gospel with our neighbors, we're showing that we don't believe Jesus' words, that he's sending a judgment. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ is patient not only with the sins of the world, but also with the sins of his people. But this is our opportunity to repent of our sin. This is an opportunity for us to repent of our anxieties of the, of the future when Jesus is in control over every moment. This is an opportunity for us to repent of our apathy and our indifference, not just of following Jesus, but our apathy towards our neighbor who outside of Christ is condemned to hell. That's a terrifying fate that if we take it seriously, we will share the power of the gospel and see it transform people's lives. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us your word that gives us comfort. Lord, may we not lose heart knowing that while our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For our sufferings are, even the worst of sufferings, are a light, momentary affliction. And that that light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Lord, may you help us to not be anxious for you are in control. Not to be anxious because you've given us signs that let us know that you are coming. To know that judgment has not been forgotten. To let us know signs that you have not forgotten your people in the midst of their suffering. Signs that should 
not cause us anxiety when we see plagues, when we see famines, when we see political upheaval, or even if our nation was to head into war. But that those signs should show us that Jesus' word is true. That these things will last until the end of the age. And that Jesus is sovereign over all of them. And Lord, may you forgive us for our indifference. Lord, we are so thankful that we have been given the power of the gospel. And we may, may we not be selfish to keep it to ourselves. But that we would share it with our family with our neighbors, with our co-workers, that we would see people who live in fear be transformed to be people without hope, to be coming people with a hope, a hope that is in Christ, and you will not disappoint. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.